Art Problems Podcast, Episode 17. I'm your host, Patty Johnson. This is the podcast where we talk about how to get more shows, grants, and residencies. And on today's podcast, we're talking about art scams and pay-to-play scenarios. Now, multiple readers have requested that I covered that I cover this subject, so that's what I'm doing. And I also just want you to know that if you've got a subject that you want covered here, just let me know via email or Instagram DMs, and I will do my best to make that happen because your requests are really what this show is about. Now, it's also a subject that I wanted to cover because inside the network membership, we see at least one post per week asking whether a request for an artwork is actually just a scam. And the problem is so pervasive that we're actually building a scam database and have added a specific channel to track all of the scams so that we can help our members stay safe. Now, I think that scams might be in the air. I'm not sure if you read Zachary Small's March 17th piece in the New York Times about arts scams, but it exists specifically to to discuss their ubiquity. Now, Small only talked about a a narrow bandwidth of scams involving mailing art and NFTs. We're going to do a deeper dive here and talk about the types of scams and pay-to-play scenarios and how to distinguish what's legitimate and what's not. Now, as a means of organization, I think it's useful to establish a taxonomy for these things. So as I see it, there are five main categories and they're, they roughly align with the platforms they're on. So the first is Instagram and Twitter scams. Those might also just be described as social media scams. This might be somebody pretending to be you or stealing your account. There's also a number of commission scams out there, which we'll talk about. The second is email scams. This might be somebody pretending to be meta, somebody pretending to be a buyer that's not really a buyer. The third is pay-to-play scams. Now, this is somebody asking you to pay for real estate in exchange for, quote-unquote, visibility that they have no incentive to secure. The fourth is application fee scams. These are basically lottery schemes in which the payment for the application fee supports a prize pot, and a jury is sometimes used to whitewash the lottery structure. Sometimes they don't even bother with a jury. It's just a transparent ploy for money. And five, there are publication and copyright scams. So these are payments for listings and books that may not have any financial return and companies that send copyright infringement notice for images you've posted online. And I think the copyright scams, I've listed that in the publication section, but I'm actually going to talk about it in the uh, digital scams section of this podcast, just because I think that the copyright scams tend to exist because of the digital medium that that is in in play. And as a general rule, the more digital the, the medium involved, the scammier the scam. Meaning Instagram and email scams more often involve criminal activity, 
whereas pay-to-play scams involve misleading business practices, but aren't as often actually illegal. They're just immoral. So I I may be splitting hairs here, but I do think that's an important uh, distinction because the level of immorality uh, often comes through in the digital world. Publication scams, sometimes they might not even be scams so much as they are just ineffective means of promotion for artists when they aren't chosen carefully. So let's begin. Let's first take a look at the Instagram and email scams. Now, there's some crossover with these types of scams, but the most widespread was covered by Zachary Small in that New York Times article. This scam typically involves uh, the purchaser of an artwork sending a check for that artwork and for the shipping and then asking for the person, uh, asking the artist to pay the person arranging for the shipping. And then you just watch the check balance or something and the shipper then absconds with your money. Now, this scam is ubiquitous enough that many artists uh, will escape it simply because they've been targeted so often. I actually don't know of a single artist who hasn't had those types of requests. I'm not an artist and I get them all the time. Now, the way to never fall prey to a scam like this is to never ship anything until the check fully clears. Now, aside from the fact that you probably already know of this and there's a lot of other things uh, involved that would give you clues that this was a scam, that's the biggest one because this is a best practice that galleries have to follow this rule. So if you're acting as a dealer, you need to follow the same best practices that they do to protect themselves so that you can protect yourself. Now, usually this is true of almost all scams, but the scammer will have done no research. And that's because it's essentially a mass mailer spam. So they'll say you really, they really like your work and they might mention a size or something that they're looking for, but they won't be able to describe it. They might get your name or gender wrong. And these are signs that they aren't acting in good faith. Now, another version of this scam that Zachary Small talked about on Instagram are people who ask for commissions. So one scam that I saw recently began with the DM, hi, I love your work. Are you commission open? So obviously the grammar here is immediately challenged. Now, after hearing yes, from the artist, the scammer sent an image asking for a portrait. That image was this like weird image of a trucker and like his dog and inside the vehicle. And it was kind of unclear whether he wanted a portrait of the dog or him. And also it was just like the worst photo. It was clearly just like randomly grabbed from Instagram. So this particular person had no followers. They didn't follow the artist. They hadn't liked any of those, any of his posts. And with these types of requests, they all tend to lead to some sketchy form of payment. You know, they want to pay in the form of a digital check or something else. They'll claim an overpayment and then ask you to send them money. And then, of course, the check doesn't clear and all you have is the overpayment. 
Right. And I think a version of this was probably uh, covered in the in the Times article too. Now, for reasons that are not entirely clear to me, scams often tend to come in waves. So they don't know you're there. And then suddenly you've got five shit emails in your inbox that you've got to delete. You know, the same is true with your phone. Like nobody knows you're out there. And then one day you've got like 20 calls or something like that, that that are all from China um, or, you know, wherever it is that people are trying to get you to, to spend something you don't need to spend. Now, NFT scammers in particular seem to work in this way where they, they spam you all at once. Now, these scams entail an Instagrammer who wants you to mint an NFT of your work so that they can buy it. What happens next is that they'll ask you for your crypto wallet password, which is essentially like giving somebody your bank account number. It's pretty safe to say that if you're not already minting NFTs, anybody contacting you hoping to buy some is really just looking to sell your bridge. Now, that's a super scam, a common scam. One that is becoming more common for artists are all of the fake accounts run by people who will claim to be you on Instagram. So, you know, they'll have the same name as you, but they'll add an extra character or something like that. Um, And the reason that these accounts exist typically is that they're hoping to collect money from your friends. Now, I've seen several instances of this over the last couple of weeks, and that's one reason that meta verification isn't such a bad thing, in my opinion. It costs money, but you'll have account protection from these people, and the scammers who have hijacked your friends' accounts and hope to do the same to you by having, say, you vote for them in a fake contest that gives them access to your account and anyone else there, that'll be like those people won't be able to get you. Now, I'm going to put a direct link to the verification form in the show notes so that you have that if you want it. But also know that Instagram sends you a link when you qualify. Note that anyone claiming to be from Instagram is a scammer. Instagram never directly contacts anyone unless it's through their broadcast menus. And, you know, I think what they do is they send a link to their users as a dropdown. I'm not entirely sure because I actually have not received that notice, but that's often how these things come. And the last thing I just want to say here as it pertains to verification, I give this recommendation uh, for verification with some degree of hesitation, which is because I think that particularly this past month, um, Instagram has not worked well for a lot of people. Most people have seen drops in their, like in their views. And the reasons for that are more complicated than I'm going to get into here. Uh, but they're all dumb. Is <laughs> kind of the upshot. And I don't think it's good for users. So, you know, that's, I guess that's the caveat that I would, I would give for that. Getting back to the scammers and the way they scam. The way that most scammers get people is not because their targets are so dumb and 
clueless, you know, to get you at a down moment, a moment when you're upset about something else or feeling fragile. Maybe you lost an important commission and then a scammer comes and is requesting one, right? So knowing how to identify a scammer is important, but I'd also offer the advice that if you're feeling particularly upset, it might be a good time to like put the phone down and the computer away and like just take a walk, clear your mind. And I say this as somebody who has a certain amount of personal experience with this because I nearly gave my password to an email phishing scheme from facebookmail.com. You'll note that the URL does not match the actual URL, facebook.com. And that's because I had a post rejected by Facebook. And then 20 minutes later, I got a notification from a scammer that a post that uh, had been rejected. And that led to my account being slated for deletion. Now, I want to note that not only would I normally catch a scam like this, I'd already seen that scam. But that's what happens when you're stressed out, when you're preoccupied, when you're down. That's when they get you. So, so I also want to say that if you have been scammed, I think one of the worst feelings about being scammed is like how stupid you feel. You know, like you should have known better. This was something that would would have been transparent to anybody else. It's so easy to go down that path. And, you know, it's just not true. The reason these things work is because they prey on you when you're not at your best, when you're down. The last thing in the digital realm that I want to talk about is the increasing frequency of copyright infringement notices from companies demanding outrageous amounts of money. Now, I'm going to say from the outset here, I'm not a lawyer. This is not uh, legal advice. If you need that, you should definitely look that up. But I will just sort of go through what, what this is. Now, the language, the language will typically say something to the effect of, finally, while removing the unlicensed photograph from commercial displays required, please understand that removal alone is insufficient to end this matter. And then there'll be fees that are demanded and they can range anywhere from a couple hundred dollars to like hundreds of thousands uh, if they're claiming multiple uh, infringements, because I think there's a cap to the amount. I think it's like $30,000, but let's say that, you know, they, they ask for, they claim many infringements. They can, they can uh, ask for a lot. Now, sometimes these demands can be real. So you want to contact either the Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts or the Artist Rights Society. They will help you. I will also note that I think these scams are ubiquitous enough at this point that uh, the Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts, at least, actually has a notice saying that they, they have a lot of requests for this. And I contacted them because somebody contacted me about this and I have not heard from them. Uh, so that also told me something about how much I needed to worry about that. But, you know, we will see. <laughs> uh, there's no chickens being counted before they're hatched. Now, you also want to know that some of these uh, firms have contacted 
artists claiming copyright infringement uh, for use of their own images on their own site. So Pick Rights is notoriously bad for frivolous claims and has fam famously demanded money from Obama's photographer, Pete D'Souza, for publishing his own photograph on his site. So I think they probably have some sort of digital crawler that is identifying images and I guess is not particularly good, but they actually had to make a statement about this because Pete D'Souza is quite well known. On to the unethical, but often not illegal means of ripping artists off. And that is the pay to play models. Now there's some gray area in here, so bear with me, but I wanted to start with some of the more black and white cases. So the first is that if you're paying a gallery to participate in a show, that's not a commercial gallery model. That's a real estate business model involving renters. That's the so-called so gallery and subletters. That would be you, the artist. If there's no curation in the space, their promotion is not going to be helpful. Even if they do have a mailing list and an Instagram following, it won't be because they cultivated and nurtured that collector audience. Their real audience is you. That's their customer base. You know, it's because a lot of like whatever following they have, it's because a bunch of artists with shows shared their contacts. So those contacts are not necessarily going to be valuable to you because they haven't been cultivated in any way. And that's the job of gallerist. Now, the next one I want to talk about is paying to participate in a curator or dealer's booth at a fair. That's quite similar. Now, there are models that are exceptions to this. If you're participating in spring break, for example, that our fair has a different model that is excluded. If you're participating in a more common art fair model, you shouldn't have to pay. And you definitely don't have to preserve whatever split they're offering you. Now, I've heard of artists being asked to pay a booth fee, you know, a percentage for a group, uh, group booth, and then pay 40% to the dealer. That is not okay under no circumstances. That's the dealer is going to get a lot of money. And I don't even know if I would call that person a dealer at that point, because they're not really operating as one. Again, they're more like a real estate broker. Now I have heard of slightly different splits for fares. So if the standard split is 50-50, sometimes in less common cases, the 60% to the dealer would help uh, cover all the costs of a high-profile fair, like or my like the Miami fair, for example. But that's as far as it goes. The other example I have is the is the open calls where artists are invited to submit to a show at a gallery and then charged a what's called an administrative fee. So Vander Plus Gallery in New York in the Lower East Side, they follow artists on Instagram. And then they'll DM them with something like, dear artist, you know, very personal. And then, you know, give them the pitch. And there's no submission fee, but there is an administrative fee to be determined by the size and number of works selected. And that's what would be charged. So again, 
What we're talking about here is a real estate model. It's not a commercial gallery. In a commercial gallery, the gallery works for you and they pay you. In a real estate model, you rent for them, so you're paying them. So another version of this is the group show where you have to pay a participation fee. And that fee isn't mentioned in the open call. Now, I don't have to tell you that one of the reasons this is so problematic is that it's misleading. And that's why those galleries should be avoided. I mean, would you want anybody representing your work who already lied to you? Or, you know, well, even if it wasn't a direct lie, it was a lie of omission. You know, who knows how they would handle your collectors or the money paid for any purchase work. So you don't want them having anything to do with your money. But I think like maybe the bigger question is like, are there times when a fee makes sense? And I would say there are a few times where I think it's, you know, maybe not ideal, but acceptable. So some nonprofits ask for enough money to cover their basic expenses for this space, but then offer a 70-30 split. Now, an example of that is the Painting Center in New York, where members can propose shows, and they need to explain like how the show will be funded, either through grants or self-funding. And in this case, you know, I think the model is acceptable because I know that the money isn't just lining someone's pockets, but supporting their operational expenses. So, and they have to report that to the IRS. So there is a public service element involved. The weird thing about pay to play is that application fees have become so normalized that we often don't even think of them as a scam. And to be fair, submit to those charging fees submittal software like that that's the name of the company submittable it costs a fortune to use and so many applications have to charge a fee i think the weatherspoon museum in north carolina greensboro north carolina is a good example of this because they recently charged it was a very small fee it was i think it was like a two dollar fee for submissions rather than keeping them free because I think what I had learned was that Submittable was going to charge them like an enormous fee if the organization charged nothing. So in that case, they they decided they needed to. In other cases, you know, Ortega Gasset is a good example. That's an artist-run center based in Brooklyn, New York. They make the bulk of their operation budget for the year off their open call fees. So when that's the case, you know, I like... I have to say that those application fees are acceptable and they have an actual process involved in the selection process. So it's not just like, it's not just a scheme, you know, they're really paying attention to who is being selected. You know, I also think that there are pretty small fees for those that like the, I like your work exhibitions. Those are seasonal exhibitions. And anybody who gets rejected gets materials that help you improve your application for the next time. So, you know, I think there are people who are trying to do this right. And then there are other organizations. So the Hopper Prize is is a prize that I think is problematic. It runs with the veneer of authenticity, which are jurors. 
That said, it describes their prize money as merit-based grants and their website as a digital archiving program. And personally, I think that's really inaccurately describing crowdfunded prize pots and uploading JPEGs to a website. That's not digital archiving. There's nothing on their website that describes the founder of the founders of the leadership or anything about the so-called archiving that they're doing. And there's no financial breaks offered for artists who need them. And they don't offer any other programming. They're shortlisted applicants. To me, anyway, I know that artists appreciate this, but for me, they read as an exposure ploy more than it does support for the artists. It helps them build their following. Now, with all that said, I will say that the award does tend to go to relatively accomplished artists, and that, combined with the fact that they do use jurors, gives them the veneer of authenticity, but I... Honestly, I have yet to see anything that really demonstrates that they are in this for the right reasons. I think they happen to have pretty good copy on their website and they know what the language of the art world looks like. And But I, I don't see enough evidence that they're actually supporting artists. The National Parks Residency, I think, has... Uh, sort of similar fee problems. They ask for significant fees. Uh, and I have yet to meet an artist who has actually won one of their grants. And they have like the National Parks Residency seems to have a residency for every park in the country. Like it's so sprawling. The only artists I've met who have gotten anything from them have just been told that they should apply again and pay the fee because their work got far enough along in the selection process that it might have been a finalist. Now, I would say that you want to distinguish them from the National Park Service, which administers a much more legitimate program. The final pay-to-play model that I wanted to discuss are pay-to-play publication models. So this is probably the space where I would argue the most amount of gray area exists. And the reason for this is that commercial publications by and large are no longer commercially viable enterprises, but the need for the service still exists. So 30 years ago, publications that had fees, participation fees, I think were easily dismissible. And that is not the case anymore. Uh, It doesn't mean that you don't have to be careful. You know, you have to curate everything, but we don't have a reliable means of getting press and exposure for ourselves anymore. And that means that we do have to rely on self-publishing catalogs and other types of enterprises. So Erica has said, I like your work, publishes catalogs for artists at a cost, which can be helpful if you need templates. And it's just an easier, like it's a way of making publishing easier. American painters cost to have your work listed in. I think that's a little bit, I'm on the fence as to whether it's really worth it. You know, you're basically advertising in a book of advertisements. So the selection is at least partially based on who can pay. You know, um, another example is new art. 
Um, that's an Instagram account that promotes an abstract painting. I think the account actually, you know, promotes pretty accomplished abstract art, all things considered, but it does ask artists to pay for inclusion in its magazine. And I would just say that philosophically, I can't get behind that model. I don't think that you should be paying to participate in something where you don't have full control over how your materials are presented. And I think that's the key to maintaining your agency in all of this. What is your say and how your art is presented? Where is your control? Because if you don't have any say in how your work is presented, but you're being asked to pay for the privilege of presentation, that that's just another scammer scamming. And your work deserves a lot better than that. And that, my friends, wraps up another episode of Art Problems. If you have a scam or any kind of pay-to-play situation you want discussed, just send me a message over Instagram. Or if you're a network member, you can send me a message inside the portal. There is surely a part two to this podcast, and that will come from all of you. Thank you for listening. If you like the show, please leave a review and share it with a friend. It really helps get that valuable information out to more artists just like you. You can find all of the names and the links that we reference in this conversation at workshop.art slash podcast.